it's such a privilege uh, to, to be up here uh, this morning um, and such a privilege for us to dive into God's Word uh, together. So let me pray for us one more time and then we'll look at this psalm together. Lord, thank you uh, for your goodness and kindness. It's, it's good for us to be together this morning. It's good for us to, um, to remember your promises, to remember your goodness, uh, to know uh, your great love uh, for us. And we thank you for the Psalms, and we thank you for this Psalm in particular, and pray that you would help us uh, to, to see you today in it, and that you would continue to shape and form us according to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as some of you know, I've talked to you about it. We're currently uh, in the process of looking at colleges for our oldest daughter, Caroline. She's going into her senior year uh, of high school, and uh, she has already proven in this process to be much smarter uh, than me because one of the things that she is doing is looking a lot more uh, at schools in warmer locations than I did. And I really feel a little bit jealous of her as she's doing this because I I, really, I look back, I'm like, what, what in the world was, was I thinking when I was in high school? Because all the schools that I considered were in these really cold places. I was like East Lafayette, Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, East Lansing, Michigan, and then finally ending up in gray, snowy, freezing cold Syracuse, New York for four years. Go orange and all of that, but honestly, not always a fun place uh, to be. The winters are not pleasant. The winters are extremely long. They seem to last forever. Drove me a little bit batty at times. You get up to campus in the fall, and it, it would be beautiful. It would be great uh, for a couple weeks, and then all of a sudden, it would be gray and cold, and that was pretty much it uh, until late April or early May, and sometimes not even that. I remembered this, but I looked it up to make sure I wasn't like making it up in my head, but on May 12th of my sophomore year, graduation day. The high was 46 degrees and it snowed 2.1 inches. In many ways, this was a drag, but, but I will say this. When the, when the weather finally did uh, get nice, like really, you know, late in the spring, on, on that day when, when the sun came out and, and, the, and the clouds cleared and, and the temperature climbed up in, into the 50s or, or maybe even the 60s, it was like Mardi Gras and the Meadowcroft summer picnic put together, Right? all rolled into one. Everyone's outside. Frisbees are just flying everywhere. Boom boxes are blaring, whatever it was we were listening to back in the, the mid-90s. After all those days of, of cold and gray and, and, and wet, the beautiful day felt so different, so refreshing and so good. It was, it was different and it was better. As has become our tradition here at Meadowcroft, we are spending some time this summer in the book of Psalms, which is one of the most significant books in the Bible. It's also a very long book. It's not the type of book uh, that we would probably ever just preach straight through in order like we do with some other books. But it's so good for us to slow down and spend some time in this important part of Scripture. And one of the ways that the Psalms function is to express God's truth in a different way than other parts of the Bible. Much of the Bible expresses God's truth through the vehicle of story or narrative. So we think of David and Goliath, we think of Noah's Ark, we think of the history of, of Jesus recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and so on. And then some of the Bible expresses God's truth through what we call prose. So think of the letters of Paul, including Philippians, which we studied together as a church recently. And then some of the Bible expresses God's truth in a different way through poetry. And this is where the Psalms come in. 
And all of Scripture is good and, and true and has great beauty, uh, but poetry can help us in many ways. There's one author, uh, Tim Mackey, from some of you are familiar with the Bible Project. He said this, he said, in life, we tend to form mental ruts, and we think in these familiar, well-worn paths that are very hard to get out of through logic or reasoning. And what good poetry does is force you off the familiar path into new territory. And this is certainly how several of the early psalms and how our psalm today, Psalm 4, functions. The author of this psalm was King David, a man who was known as the greatest king in the history of Israel, which was a nation that God had set apart for himself. And in this section of the psalms, the psalms help us to kind of step out of the normal, uh, common way of going about life. And these psalms paint a picture of a better and more beautiful way forward, a way that will stand out all the more when it's compared to the way of the world around us so often beckons us to go. It's a way that's different, and it's a way that's better, and it's a way that's beautiful. We'll see how this works today in Psalm 4, where David is in the midst of dealing with some opponents and those that oppose him and those that ultimately oppose God. And we'll see David reference the, the distinct way that God has called him to follow as he calls others in the psalm to do the same. And this psalm is going to be helpful for us, I think, as well as we think about the good and beautiful path that God is calling us to take as we walk through this life together. So we'll take this brief psalm in three steps. In verse 1, uh, David will cry out to God in the midst of his trial and distress. Then in verses 2 to 5, David will address and, and engage those who are opposing him. And then finally, at the end, in verses 6 to 8, we'll hear David tell of what God has done for him. So let's look back at verse 1. It says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So as we progress through this passage, David is going to get to the point where he addresses those who oppose him, but we begin with him addressing God. And there's a couple things for us to notice here. First, it's, it's really clear that David is, is approaching God in a way that, that, that is very bold. He, he's extremely direct. There are no introductory uh, questions here. There's no hesitation. There's, there's no asking God if he would perhaps see fit to help him. There are very straightforward, imperative statements. Answer me. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. One commentator points out that the word hear in verse 1 is used as a call not just for someone to pay attention, but to respond in obedience. So when a parent says to their kids, hey, listen up, there's a directness to that statement. And when we apply that statement to this psalm, it can make us a little uncomfortable when we consider approaching the God of the universe in this way. I mean, Max just prayed the pastoral prayer. I think we all would have been a little bit taken aback if he had just started by saying to God, hey, listen up, right? That's not how we typically approach God. Now, there are 150 psalms, there are scores of other prayers in the Bible. So the way that David addresses God here is, is not the only way to address God or even the preferred way to address God, but it does highlight the way that God loves us and cares for us. That as his children, we can approach him with great boldness, with great confidence. Yes, with humility. Yes, with the realization that he knows better than we do and that he will do as he sees fit, but also with unapologetic boldness. 
This is the kind of God we have, and this is the depth of his love and his care and concern for us, that he will indeed listen when we boldly approach him. I heard one pastor say, God is your biggest problem's biggest problem. (laughs) And when we go to him, surrounded by whatever trials are besetting us, surrounded by problems, it's so good to know that this is true and that he hears There's another thing for us to see here in verse 1. In the middle of the verse, we see that David is basing his prayer on how God has treated him in the past. David now has the benefit of of following God for a number of years, and he has seen God take care of him again and again. And so he says to God, you have given me relief when I was in distress. David is basing his prayer not just on his current need, but on his own personal history of how God has cared for him. And I think this is an important step for us as well, as we face trials, as we face challenges, to remember how the Lord has cared for us in the past, to practice the discipline of gratitude in the day today, just as Max did in the pastoral prayer, thanking God for all the ways that he cares for us and blesses us so that when those trials do arrive, there's kind of a well-worn path in our hearts of giving thanks to God for who he is and all the ways that he cares for us. Now, that is a a good thing to do, but I, I will admit that this is easier said than done, especially when we consider how David describes his own problems that he has been through. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, that word distress, that that gives uh, the sense of something uh, that that is very restrictive, almost like the walls were were closing in on him. You know, last week, uh, Max mentioned how a couple years ago uh, you got hurt pretty badly, right, when you were body surfing in the ocean, and I think he said you learned many things, but one thing you learned was that you're never doing that again, which I thought was probably a good lesson. (laughs) And I think that is true, right? As as we get older, sometimes the list of things we're not going to do anymore, it does tend to grow. Well, I've got a whole separate list of things that I've never done and I'm never going to do, and I'm okay with it. And I guess it's the opposite of a bucket list, I don't know. I had to actually add to this list recently when I saw pictures of a group of what is known as extreme cavers. Have you seen these people? They like to go down into caves, which already I'm out at this point, right? Nope. The bats and bears live there. I'm all right. But not only that, not only do they go into these caves, but they keep going into these caves. In fact, they look for caves where the gaps are so narrow that there is literally no room between their bodies and the walls all around them. I'm getting stressed just talking about it, let alone when I was looking at the pictures thinking, wow. And if that sounds terrible to you, some of you might might think that's great. No, I I, I can't agree with you. If if you're like me and it sounds terrible to you, then you understand a little bit about some of the things that David had been through, that feeling of the walls closing in as the sufferings and stresses and hardships piled up. Now, I've had some moments in my life where I've, I've, I've had that feeling, right? I've had that feeling uh, of the walls kind of closing in. And in those moments, it is really important to remember God's faithfulness in the past. But let me also say this. You may have experienced this. It's really hard to do that at times. When the walls are closing in, it can be really hard to see anything else. And some of you might be here today in that situation. And if you are, I would just say it's so, so good that you are here because you're going to have a hard time seeing it on your own. 
And you're going to need other people to come alongside you and point you to God's faithfulness. And not only that, but let me say this, we need you here because it's a great privilege for us to bear those kind of burdens together. Because in walking through these things together, we see more and more of God's care and faithfulness. David knew the importance of having others walk with him in this way because there were times when he felt the absence of it. Many scholars think that David composed this psalm after his son Absalom engaged in a coup to take over the kingship, and that sent David out of Jerusalem and on the run. And here he was, betrayed by his son, deserted by one of his closest friends, leaving him feeling very much alone and very much betrayed. He was really, if if this is when he wrote it, he was very much in the thick of it here. And he turns from addressing God to addressing those who oppose him in verses 2 to 5. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So David, after, after boldly and directly addressing his God, now boldly and directly addresses those who oppose him. And he does this by asking two rhetorical questions that start with how long. David wants to know how long will they continue to live and think and behave in this way. And what is it that, that his opponents are doing? First of all, it says they are turning honor into shame. Now there's some difference of opinion here about whether this refers to people dishonoring David or dishonoring David's God, but I think either way the lesson is similar, especially when we consider that one of the main ways that we honor God is by honoring other people, by honoring those made in his image. And this is true and relevant for all people, because all people are made in the image of God, but it's especially so when it comes to those that God has placed in authority, as David was as the king of Israel. And when you understand this, you you begin to see how deep this offense was against God and against David when he was unjustly undermined by those who opposed him. We can see how when David was was betrayed by his son, that that, that he was dishonored and that God was dishonored. And we can see how how these people sought after lies and, and delusions by proclaiming Absalom the king. When Absalom wasn't the true king, David was the one who God had made to be king. Of course, this is true not not just in the case of David and Absalom, but all the time when people oppose God. And when people oppose God, they tend to find someone or something else to worship. Psalm 4 says that that David's opponents seek after vain words and lies. And that word lies there very much has overtones of seeking after idols, of finding other people, finding other things besides God to put our trust in. And we do this even though we see again and again, unlike God, who continues to come through for us, our idols always come up short. They make big promises, they demand more and more of us, and then they fail us again and again. And David sees all of this, and he's able by the grace of God to look beyond those who oppose him. And in verse 4, to remember that those who mock and those who oppose him do not have the final word, but that the Lord does, and that the Lord loves David, and that David is God's prized possession, and that the Lord will hear and protect David. 
we see David take two looks in the psalm. He takes one look at his enemies, and they're powerful, but then another more important look to the Lord, the one who is all-powerful, and the one who ultimately will care for him and shape his destiny. And knowing that he belongs to the Lord, he, he's now free to address those who oppose him, the ones who, who have really lost the plot. And to them, he, he, he gets to now play the role of, of the wise instructor. His first wise instruction is, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now this is a little bit of a complicated instruction uh, to understand, but it seems that the heart of it is that David is calling his opponents to self-control and away from, from the rash anger and the rash pronouncements, away from outrage, to have a deep consideration and awareness of themselves as they ponder themselves and the world around them. Elsewhere in the Bible, we, we read of people lying awake in bed plotting evil, and David is calling for the opposite here, to lay in bed and to quietly and humbly consider their anger and their thoughts rather than quickly broadcasting and acting on their anger, to keep that anger from becoming outrage. And in this instruction that David offers to his enemies, I think there's, there's two sides to it that, that are very helpful for us. The first side is, is that these instructions help us when, when we are uh, the ones who, who people get angry at and, and when we get mocked. And make no mistake, this is part of the deal when we follow Jesus in this world. You will encounter mockery, you'll encounter anger from those who oppose God. The Christian ethic is always going to have points of tension with every worldly system of thought and belief. And so no matter what, we are always going to be called to be a counterculture, to be different, to be set apart. And, and this is just not something that, that everyone's going to love. You're not always going to have the approval of the world around you or even of your own social subgroup. That's just the reality. But this is something we can joyfully receive because those who oppose God do not have the final word, but God does, and he loves you. And the second side of these instructions help us when we are not the ones who are being lied to and the subjects of outrage and mockery, but when we are the ones tempted to go along with it. This has always been, been the holy and good calling of the church to not return evil for evil, but to repay evil with blessing. Now we know this. We live in a world that runs on anger and outrage. It's the engine that drives so much of, of social media, so much of cable news. Bad news travels way faster than good news. Misinformation travels way faster than truth. And so often for us, it's easy to love to receive it, to share it, to participate in the anger and the outrage, in part because it helps us to feel like we are the good guys. And we all love a story, myself included, where we are the good guys. My wife, Catherine, had the chance last week to catch up with a friend who works in campus ministry. She's worked in campus ministry for, I think, at least 20 years. And uh, she was talking about some of the challenges in this type of ministry right now. And this missionary said that one of the main challenges is dealing with all the anger on campus. And Catherine clarified, do you mean that the anger of the people you're reaching out to or the anger of the Christian students? And the missionary clarified, no, I mean the Christian students. Now that's one missionary, obviously, on one campus, but, but it's still heartbreaking to hear. But the good news in this is that we remember that each challenge like this reveals an opportunity 
One of the, the really good books I've read in the last few years, I've mentioned it before, uh, it's called A Non-Anxious Presence uh, by an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers. And in that book, Sayers talks about how we live in really such anxious times and how one of the callings for the church is to be present in a way that, that, that counteracts this anxiety and shows the world a better way. And he actually, in the book, draws on Psalm 4 to make his point. And he shows how David was set apart in a good and beautiful way that he refers to as differentiation. He says in Psalm 4, this is Mark Sayers, in Psalm 4, David addresses the toxic crowd. How long will you love delusions and see false gods? David can ask this and see through the idolatry and fantasy of his culture. Having gained the perspective of distance from the mob, he is differentiated unto the Lord. Sayers goes on to say, with God, differentiation becomes more than a, than a distance from the anxious crowd. It becomes a calling, a holy set-apartedness, a return to the right order in which God is our primary connection, the foundational relationship of our life around which all other relationships can be reordered. So what a privilege and opportunity it is for the church to grow more and more into a people who is set apart from, from the idols and from the outrage and from the mockery and more and more into a differentiated community that doesn't just remove itself from the world, but lives in the world as a pointer to something truer and greater. This is what David does. He holds out as an alternative to the lies, idols, and outrage that his opponents have cherished. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. He says, look, the Lord is better than the path that you have been following. You should worship him. And this becomes more clear, what he says here in our next few verses. David keeps going because he realizes that, that behind everything that's happening, behind the idolatry, behind the anger, there's, there's a more fundamental disorder that is driving those who oppose him. And we see that in our final section in verses 6 to 8. It says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Just as David did in the last section, he, he's drawing a contrast between himself and those who oppose him. That's what the, the many uh, refer to in, in verse 6. They're the ones that are saying, who will show us some good? In other words, David is talking about people who, who are loudly wondering who or what can provide the, the, the good life for them. Who can make sure that their crops grow? Who can make sure that their families flourish and that their names endure? Who can make sure that they have the way of life that they want? And there are two problems with these questions. The first is an obvious one. The second one is a little bit more searching, I think. The first problem is that those who are asking these questions don't understand that it's only the Lord that can provide these things for them. At the time of ancient Israel, in the time when Psalm 4 was composed, there, there were many other so-called gods that, that, that made big promises. Promises of provision, promises of protection. And these gods tempted the Israelites continually. And if you read the Old Testament, you see again and again how they were tempted. And when David's enemies are wondering who can show them some good, what they're wondering, what they're saying, is that maybe it would be better to trust one of these other so-called gods than it would be to trust the true God of Israel. 
And of course, today, you know, we're, we're in a very similar boat. Many things tempt us to trust them as, as our sources of meaning and our sources of protection and, and, and provision. Money, among other things, comes to mind, although there's a whole long list. And we're tempted to put our trust in the wrong place to provide what we need. It's an important question in Psalm 4, but also there's something else behind this that I think is even more fundamental. I think it's been about 15 years since I got my first smartphone. It was a BlackBerry. Shout out to Jay Graff if he's here. I'm not sure if he's here or not. (laughs) And I remember thinking when I got this smartphone that it was such a great answer to so many questions. Questions like, how can I be available all the time? If something comes up at work, how can I keep up with the news whenever I want? How can I watch or listen to whatever I want at any time? And I think what so many have come uh, to realize and to grapple with when it comes to these devices is that, yes, maybe the smartphone does provide answers to all of those questions, but maybe those weren't the questions that we should have been asking to begin with. Because while, yes, there there are definitely some good things about the devices we all Uh, most of us at least carry around. It's also probably true that we weren't asking all the right questions when we brought them into our homes and into our hands. And that's, I think, the second more searching and, and, and more significant problem with what David's opponents are asking. Not that they're asking the right questions of the wrong gods, but they are asking the wrong questions altogether. They are asking who can show us some good But see, it's their definition of good that is deficient. Their version of good is making sure they have what they want and that their desires are fulfilled. Now, it's not necessarily at all a bad thing to want to have your desires fulfilled. It can actually be a good thing, but only if your desires are formed by God's truth and not your version of the truth. We see this in how David responds to those who oppose him. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Notice he doesn't say, they're looking for grain and wine, or you're the one who will give me grain and wine. No, he completely subverts the very question that his opponents are asking and points out that he has something far better. And this builds on uh, what we said earlier about the opportunity that the church has as we function in the world. It's not just that we have different answers to hold out to the world, that's true, but it's that we often have completely different questions. See, one of the challenges we face as we live in the world is that there are so many assumptions about what it is that is good, about what it is that should be desired, and then the remaining questions are simply about how do we get to that good? But the issue is that that, that every culture, including ours, every system of thought, whether it's progressive or conservative or something else, has these assumptions, assumptions of what the good is. Maybe the good is that we can be as safe as possible. Maybe the good is our own financial ease and comfort. Maybe the good is that our kids will get the best education and best jobs possible. Maybe the good is that we have as much individual freedom as possible. Maybe the good is the victory of our nation or our political party. Maybe the good is that we can increase our standard of living and have easier access to the stuff that we like. Maybe the good is that our church will get really big and really influential and have a good name for itself and be remembered. These are all assumptions of what is good, or as one author puts it, the good life, what the good life looks like. 
And we often don't step back from these assumptions and ask deeper questions about how our vision of the good might bump into what God considers good. That's why we read Matthew 5 earlier, known as the Beatitudes, early in the service, about what a truly blessed life looks like. There are parts of those words of Jesus that can confuse us, that can make us squirm, and that we can even kind of be quick to want to explain away. And, you know, we do this to our peril and to our loss. Because what God holds out as good is so much better than what we often assume is good. And so when the world asks, or when our own hearts are inclined to ask, who will show us some good, we can ask back, what do you mean by good? And what does that vision of what is good reveal about who and what you love? And we can not only ask those questions of others, we can ask them of ourselves. And as a church, we can be reshaped and reformed as we worship and fellowship and study and pray according to the goodness of God, what is truly good and truly beautiful, according to the story of the gospel. Because David points out, this is where true joy and true freedom lies. In being known and loved by God, he has a joy that transcends the joy of his opponents. And because the good life to him is no longer about grain and wine and all those kinds of things, he has received something much deeper and much better, and God has given him the gift of presence and peace. Grain and wine come and go, but God does not. And now David is standing apart from the anxious crowds who are fretting about what is next and who can give it to them. David is now free to rest and free even in this passage to sleep, knowing that he dwells in safety. Because as another psalm says, God, the one who keeps watch over his people, does not slumber, is not sleep. Of course, God does more than keep watch over us because he loves us. He goes beyond this and he lives and dwells with us. And we see this in a new way in, in the New Testament when Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, comes to earth and lives out and fulfills all of the Psalms, including Psalm 4. Like no one else, Jesus endured the outrage and the shame of the crowds. And Jesus, while he was slow to anger, did get angry, but did not sin in his anger. And Jesus endured it when people told lies about him and conspired against him. And Jesus instructed those who opposed him and even wept over the city of Jerusalem because they refused the true life and the true peace that he had offered to them because they had their own vision of what was truly good. And that didn't align with what Jesus held out to them. And in the midst of all this, again and again, Jesus lied down and slept in peace. Even we read on a boat in the middle of a storm because he knew he was safe in his Father's hands. And at the end of his life, Jesus fulfilled the words of Psalm 4-5 to offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord when he sacrificed himself, giving his life on a Roman cross, dying for our sin, paying the penalty for all the times we have chosen our version of the good over God's true goodness. He died for our sin, all the while trusting that he would be raised from the dead. And sure enough, when Jesus was in that distressed state, of death, enclosed in a cave, surrounded by the walls of that cave, he was raised from the dead. And that resurrection began to mark a turning point, especially for those who followed Jesus. They begin to be transformed from a bickering, anxious, angry bunch into a people that truly knew that they had been set apart by God for himself. 
And this only deepens, we read in the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes to dwell inside of them. And they become a people with a beautiful and countercultural and robust understanding of what was truly good. A people that would stand out as different from the Roman Empire around them, all the while holding out true life and true peace to their neighbors. This is our privilege as well, to call out to God with boldness, knowing that he hears us, to have our view of what is good and worthy of love shaped ultimately by the God who created us and loves us, to begin to live with true joy and true peace, knowing God and being known and loved by him. And when the world around us asks who will show us some good, we can show them and we can tell them about the true goodness of our Savior, our Lord, and our friend, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for not just your word, but what your word reveals again and again about who you are, your perfect character, the way that you love your people, care for your people, fight for your people, defend your people. Lord, we're so glad to be in your hands ultimately and not the hands of any enemies and not even our own. We're so glad for the way that you care for us and we're so thankful that you sent Jesus for us and we are thankful that he will return someday, Lord, as we wait for that day. Help us more and more be formed according to what is truly good. Lord, please do that work in our church and throughout your church around the world. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.